Hello ladies and gentlemen and welcome to the Stand Up Tragedy podcast. My name's Dave and I'm your host. Today we have another episode of Stand Up Tragedy Replayed where we've been collecting together some past performers that have stood up on the Stand Up Tragedy stage and performed tragedy with us. We're remixing some of our previous podcasts for you to listen to and enjoy. Over the last two weeks, we've been playing some tragic music. We've had serious and we've had comic music. Well, today we're moving away from music and to a whole different area of tragedy altogether. Today, we're focusing on fiction. Our lives are full of tragedy. So we started telling stories that were sometimes tragic. We had oral storytelling where people told tragedies to groups of people. And then we started to have this thing called writing and we started to do that and some of the stories that we told through our writing were tragic but still performing those words performing those tragedies in front of other people is all about having a direct connection between the words and the audience and the performer that's what we like to explore at Stand Up Tragedy and that's what we're going to be exploring on today's show as well we have three tragic storytellers who are going to share their stories with you. Author Vanessa Gebby embraced the idea of stand-up tragedy and she wrote her story especially to perform with us in our first run of shows at the Leicester Square Theatre that we did back in 2012. Here she is standing up on stage and telling a tale about the most tragic thing that she can think of. Um, I thought I'd write something specially for this evening, specially for you. Because hey. um, I knew every single one of you was going to be coming along, you know. And I thought, what's the most tragic thing I can think of? And it came to me, and it was Ikea. <laughs> <laughs> this is a story called The Door. I had to have it. It was a really lovely door, you know, sort of door-shaped, with a letterbox, and everything, and a knob. They asked if I wanted it wrapped, and I said no, it was okay, as it was. I waited ages for the bus, and when it came, the driver said, you can't bring that door on here. Fair enough, I said, and carried it 8.3 miles home. <laughs> My home it's a bit manky, really. The door was much nicer than the house. So I decided to save up and build a new house to go with the door. I built a front doorstep first. And I stuck the door in a frame on top. And slowly, over time, I built room after room behind it. Excavated underneath first and made an underground swimming pool. <coughs> Lovely. The hallway, lovely too, high ceiling and mirrors, huge sitting room, kitchen to die for, probably, <laughs> snooker room, always wanted one of those. I stuck some stairs in and put loads of really cool bedrooms on top with shower rooms and built-in tellies everywhere, fantastic views. Lovely roof, too. Tiled. Then came the day 
I was to move in. I'll always remember. All the neighbours came round and we had a little ceremony as I put the key in my new door. Sweet. Trouble was, bloody door wouldn't open. I tried everything, turning the knob, pulling it, and nothing happened. I turned the key this way and that, and still nothing happened. I even knocked and waited a bit. <laughs> but no one came. So in the end, I decided to take the door off the house. Or the house off the door. I unroofed the house. I unbuilt the bedrooms and the stairs and the kitchen to die for, probably. I unbuilt the sitting room and the hallway with the mirrors and the snooker room. I took a long last look at the underground swimming pool and filled it in with all the earth I'd just dug out. Finally, there it was, the door, standing there on its step. I took it out of its frame and waited by the bus stop. The driver wouldn't let me on. You can't bring a door on here, he said. So I walked 8.3 miles into town and back to the shop. I leant the door on the counter. Hello, I said. I bought this door here and it seems faulty. <laughs> the girl behind the counter looked at me. What do you mean, faulty, she said. It won't open, I said. I want my money back. The girl sighed and said she'd need to ask the manager. So she rang someone called Stephen and there was a long conversation during which she said things like, yes, really, Stephen. And doesn't look nuts to me, Stephen. And, oh, thank you, Stephen. I'd like that. I'll wear the nurse's uniform. When she finished the conversation, she turned to me and said, did I have a receipt? No, I said. A lot of water's gone under the bridge since I bought this door. And I've washed my trousers many times since. And if I had a receipt, it is now in minuscule little pieces and will have gone a progress through the underground sewage system. It will have found its way to the sea and be scattered through the oceans and may even have fetched up on some far-flung shore where it has become food for remote and exotic creatures. Probably. If they like eating receipts. She was quiet for a bit. In that case, we can't give you a refund, she said, and rang a friend and started talking about her hot date. I picked up the door and left the shop. I waited at the bus stop. When the bus came, the driver said, you can't bring that door on here. Fair enough, I said. Picked up the door and started the long walk home. <laughs> Vanessa Gebby is a talented author. You can find out more about her published work 
through her website www.vanessagebby.com or you can follow her on Twitter at Vanessa Gebby. Her first novel, The Coward's Tale, was published in 2012 and at Stand Up Tragedy we really recommend you buying it and reading it. It's a really beautiful and well put together piece of work and if you're interested in writing your own tragic stories there's a guide on her website called Short Circuit which is worth checking out. And now let's move away from the written and into the world of oral storytelling. Professional storyteller Steffi Harrop performed for Stand Up Tragedy on a very snowy night in January at the Hackney Attic for our first show of 2013. Steffi is all about keeping the art of storytelling alive and she performs stories all across London. You can find her at www.steffiharrop.co.uk and you can follow her on Twitter at Steffi Harrop. For Stand Up Tragedy, she chose one of her more chilling traditional tales. So let's have a listen. Mr Fox was wearing a smart red coat. Mr Fox was wearing a new embroidered waistcoat. Mr Fox had had his whiskers neatly trimmed and he was actually wearing a little bit of scent as well. Because this was Mr Fox's wedding day. Mr Fox looked around the room at all his friends and his neighbours gathered together, all of them eating, all of them drinking, all of them smiling. All except Lady Mary, who sat beside Mr Fox, her face as white as her wedding dress. The bride hadn't eaten a bite of her wedding breakfast, the bite that she hadn't taken. Stuck in Mr Fox's mind, why wouldn't she eat? Why wouldn't she drink? Why was the bride not smiling? After all, this was the happiest day of her life. Mr Fox leaned over. My dear, he smiled a toothy smile. My dear, can I tempt you to a slice of goose pie? A spoonful of syllabub? A small glass of wine. Lady Mary shook her head. Lady Mary said, I feel a bit strange. I had the strangest dream last night. And Mr. Fox rose to his feet. Mr. Fox smiled at all his friends, all his neighbours. He said, Lady Mary, my dearest beautiful wife, dreamed a dream last night. Tell us your dream. Lady Mary rose to her feet, her face as white as her wedding dress. And in a very small, very soft voice, she told her dream. She said, I dreamed. I dreamed, Mr. Fox, that I was walking in our garden. And then I dreamed that I, I went out through the garden gate and into the woods. And then I was walking through the woods. And then I came to your garden, Mr. Fox. 
I came to your garden gate, and up above the gate there were words written, be bold, be bold, but not too bold. I pushed the gate open, Mr. Fox, and I went into your garden, and across the garden and to your front door, and there again I saw the words written, be bold, be bold, but not too bold. I pushed open the door, Mr. Fox, and I went into your house, and I went across the hall and up the stairs, and I went all the way to the door of your study, Mr. Fox, and there again the words, be bold, be bold, but not too bold. I pushed open your study door, Mr. Fox, and what did I see inside that room? I saw women and girls, Mr. Fox, dozens of them, and every one of them pale and splashed with blood and every one of them hanging by her hair like a dead crow might hang nailed to a farmer's fence. And then, and then, then, Mr. Fox, I ran out of your study. Then I ran down the stairs. Then I ran across the hall. But as I ran through the window, I saw you. Mr. Fox, coming through the garden. I saw you coming and I saw you carrying something in your arms, something pale, something white, something that struggled. So I hid, Mr. Fox. I hid behind the sofa in your hall and I watched you come through the door. You were carrying a woman in your arms and maybe she had fainted because she wasn't struggling anymore. Her white hand hung limp, and as it dragged along the ground, I could see that she wore a sparkling diamond ring. You saw the ring too, Mr. Fox. You saw it, and your eye sparkled brighter than the diamond. You tried to tear it off her finger with your teeth. But you were too rough, Mr. Fox, and away came her whole white hand, splashing the floor with blood, and that white hand spun through the air. It landed, Mr. Fox, where I lay hidden. It landed in my lap. And then you went upstairs and I put that hand in my pocket and I ran. I ran across your garden. I ran through the woods. I ran across my own familiar lawn and home and into bed. And then, and then, Mr. Fox, that's when I woke up. There was a pause, as well there might be.
And then, Mr. Fox, he smiled his toothy smile. He laughed. He turned to Lady Mary and he said, of course, it was just a dream. It is not so, and it was not so, and God forbid that it should be so. It is not so, and it was not so, and God forbid that it should be so. It is not so. It was not so, and God forbid that it should be so. It is not so, and it was not so, and God forbid, and <gasps> something went arcing across the room, something small, something white, something that glittered as it span through the air, something that landed with a wet plop on Mr. Fox's brand new waistcoat. Mr. Fox looked down, and there it lay, a small white hand wearing a diamond ring. And there was Lady Mary on her feet, and there was Lady Mary pointing her finger like a fury. It is so, and it was so. Here's hand and ring I have to show. It is so, and it was so. Here's hand and ring I have to show. It is so, and it was so. Here's hand and ring I have to show. A dozen sword blades flashed in the air, and Mr. Fox fell dead. Thank you very much. If you're enjoying these stories, we have loads more fictional stories that we've recorded and shared that you can find back in our podcast archives. And not just fictional stories, at Stand Up Tragedy we also embrace true stories. So check us out on SoundCloud, on iTunes or on the Stitcher Smart Radio app. And now there's time for one more story. And this one had a surprise up its sleeve for the audience who watched it at the Dogstar on July the 4th this year. But I'll talk more about that after you've heard it. So let's have a listen to The House That Jack Built. Hello, good evening. Um, my name's Louise Morris. Um, yeah, sorry, I'm a bit nervous. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, right, well, okay, yeah, as, as David said, I am here to um, tell you a story. Um, this is um, the first time I've felt able to tell this story, and um, I thought that stand-up tragedy might be a good platform for it, because it's a story that I'm going to want to take um, yeah, take take further. Um, essentially, what I, I need to give you a bit of um, background information um, in that um, this is a story 
that was written by my mother. Now, my um, mother suffered a severe stroke, and that left her with um, cerebromodella spinal disconnection, which I don't know, um, well, it's, it's, it's basically, it's locked-in syndrome. So she was unable to move, unable to eat, she's completely paralyzed. Um, have any of you read um, The Diving Bell and the Butterfly? Yeah, so, yeah. Um, my, my mother was able to communicate in a similar way. Um, she has written this story using her eyelids. And yeah, I would, um, I'd like to um, take this opportunity to, to read it for you now. Um, thank you, can I have the stand back, thanks. Sorry, yeah, bear with me. My mum always loved yellow, so I've backed it onto some jaunty yellow card for you to look at. Um, so this is the house that Jack built by Linda Morris. The bedroom is our den. The carpet is the softest you've ever felt beneath your feet. Years we spent saving up for it. We argued a bit about the colour, but in the end he agreed that beige was less risky than cream. It infuriated him, the idea that we might have something in our house that wasn't perfect. Sometimes I think I can feel it on my toes, even though I couldn't feel it now if you wrapped me up in it. Jack always said a bedroom should be a place you'd be happy to be trapped in if it came to it. You don't want to be sick in a room you hate, he used to say. I don't suppose that he ever imagined that either of us would be this sick. He liked to be prepared for the worst, though. This is a man who insisted on keeping an apocalypse cupboard. That's actually what he called it. It was full of cans of things you wouldn't normally eat. Tinned peaches, rice pudding, sardines. I used to donate some of it secretly when they were collecting for food parcels at the church. I float around the house on the loneliest days, like an old lost ship. It's amazing what you can recall when recall is all you've got. It feels more real than reality most of the time. The slide of the bathroom door followed by the clink of the lock, the creak on the fifth stair photo of Louise above the hall table. We have to sell it now. What choice is there? You can go anywhere in your head, but I always end up at home. I can't resist it. The alternative is reality. Mint custard walls and thin pink curtains. Nurses I can't ask to speak more quietly. And the towering shadow of the drip beside the bed. My living room is my favorite place in the world. 
the cherry mantelpiece hand-carved. It took him years. I didn't think he'd finish it, and then it was my birthday, probably about six years after he started it. I'd gone to my mother's for a few days, and when I got back, there it was, a great roaring fire framed in the surround like a painting. The look on his face, you could tell it was worth all the splinters, those long Sundays locked in the garage. Jack busied himself with the dining room after my stroke. He told me that himself, not that he thought I could hear him. Talk to her, the doctor said. I could almost hear him rolling his eyes. He was always like that. We had a cat years ago and he refused to speak to her. What's the point in talking to something that can't understand you? He'd say. I'm here, I screamed over and over again. Please find me, I'm here. But he never did. I thank God for small mercies. I know that room better than I know the back of my own hand. I can visit at any time. He even made the curtains, would you believe? Not many people can say that their husbands made their curtains. I chose the fabric, of course. You can't trust a man with fabric. They only end up copying their mothers. <laughs> he wanted this house to be his. Hours. I used to joke that it'd never be finished, that as soon as we got anywhere near to finishing it, he'd take it all apart and start again. It wasn't all that much of a joke. Louise says he never finished the dining room. She can't bear to go round. It's like watching your childhood crumble, she says. I asked her if she wanted to live there. It's all paid off, you see. But she just wants it gone. I'd like to know that one of us could still live there, but, well, I understand. In the end, the less he believed I could hear him, the more he'd talk. It's like he became desperate, as though he'd run through his can't talk to things that don't understand barrier and come crashing out the other side. Then he was talking more than he would have if he thought I was conscious. He said the house felt enormous without me, like a haunted old mansion, he said, except the ghosts are in my head. I'd will my hand to reach out and touch him, anything to let him know, but nothing would move. He was unraveling and I was a sodding statue we understood each other, he once said. And then there was a silence as thick as smoke. When he breathed in, it was like he was sucking all the air out of the room. You understood me like no one else could, he said eventually. Now you don't even know I'm here. I'd have sold my soul and his to let him know. Inside, I was tearing at my skin to be let out, but on the outside, 
Nothing showed. They didn't tell me for months. Well, they didn't know I was in there, did they? It was an agency nurse who picked up on the blinking. It takes a fresh pair of eyes sometimes. Problem is, this thing's so rare. It was too late by the time they realized. Much too late. The last day I saw him must have been a Sunday because Songs of Praise was on the telly. The telly's on all day. I suppose they think it fills the silence. No one asked me what channel I'd like. He looked worse than I've ever seen him. Didn't look like he'd washed in days. He cried. He actually cried. The first tear in 37 years of marriage, and I couldn't even bloody wipe it for him. And then that was it. He never came back. I visit the house every day from the inside of my head, only instead of looking out at the street, I look in at our lives. It's perfect when I'm awake, but when I'm asleep, things happen. Dreams are a curse. You can't control them. The wallpaper peels. Plaster falls from the ceiling like dandruff. His mantelpiece is cracked and mildewed. I walk around calling his name and then I wake, hot and frightened, dying to sit up and catch my breath. I lie corpse still and stare at the hospital ceiling, the sinister crack creeping above my head. I was as good as dead when he thought I was a vegetable. He was all on his own, and there was nothing he could do about it. Jack needed to be in control, always did. I knew before they told me, you couldn't miss something like that. Louise just went silent. She was always the one who was good at talking to me keeping me up to date with going, with, with what was going on. Telling me funny stories about people at work or giving me the latest instalment on the neighbors. The first day she came in and, and didn't say a no, and didn't say a word. I knew it had to be her dad. She just held onto the bedclothes and screwed up her lips. When they realized I was functioning, mentally, I mean, one of the nurses told me Louise wasn't up to it. Tablets, apparently. Massive overdose. They said there was a tally chart. How many had taken? What kinds? Only Jack would keep a running total. Only Jack. Now this is all I have, his place in my head, the place my Louise grew up. This is the house that Jack built, and it's all that's left of him now. That was 
Becky Malt reading a story by Jay Adamthwaite. As you might have guessed, Becky is an actor and that story was an entirely fictional piece. But the way it was performed and the way we presented it initially on the night was as if it was true with the revelation at the end of me coming on and explaining that it wasn't. And that was an interesting moment of catharsis that the audience experienced, having thought that the story was true. Fiction is about empathy. It's about trying to put yourself into somebody else's shoes. Becky, I'm sure you'll agree, gave a really brilliant performance of the story. And here she is telling us what it was like for her as an actor to perform at Stand Up Tragedy. My name is Becky Moult, and this evening I was reading Jen Adamthwaite's story, which was called The House That Jack Built. I'm an actor-singer. I trained at the Royal Academy of Music. I do um, all sorts of various bits and bobs of, of theatre, quite a lot of cabaret and sketch comedy. I've never done sketch tragedy before, but there's a first for everything. So what did you initially think then, as a performer, when Jen came up to you and said, will you read my tragic story? I wanted the challenge for myself because I was massively out of my comfort zone. Um, tragedy is, is not my bag, I've, I've been told that that's not my strength and certainly comedy is my strength, um, I would say. So um, I thought it was a beautifully written piece and the challenge for me was to try and do it justice. Mm. You got quite immersed into the story, what's it like sharing a tragedy even if it's not your own personal? Yes, not your own personal story. It was. Um, there was an interesting issue going on because I was supposed to pretend to be the character Louise who was reading this story that was written by her mum who'd had a stroke and suffered from locked-in syndrome. Um, and the question for me was, did I pretend to be this person, Louise, who wasn't a performer, who wouldn't necessarily put across the story particularly well because she'd be so emotional? Or did I try and, and do justice to the story and read it well but then lose lose the sort of the personification of myself as as this person having being put in this crazy position of reading the story of her dead mother about her father who's committed suicide yeah it was a really interesting sort of acting dichotomy to explore how did you feel when you came off the stage i felt really um drained <laughs> and a bit shaky and quite upset Yes, I felt really like I'd gone through the wars. So do you think the audience also managed to take something away from the tragedy? I mean, Jen's beautiful writing alone um, sells the performance, certainly. I, I mean, to the extent, obviously, we set up this conceit with the, you know, I'm, I wasn't an actress, that I was in fact this, this girl, Louise, that was reading out the story of her mother. I don't know if that, in some respects, might detract from the audience's attention, thinking, hang on, is she for real? Is this actually authentic? Is, is this an actress? You know, so they spend time considering that and actually not actually focusing on, on the story itself. So that was my concern. I, yeah, I hope that they at least enjoyed the, the story. Will you do a bit more tragedy in the future? Is we given you a bit Yeah, I'd love to. Why not? If you want to find more writing by J. Adam Thwaite, that's the initial J, you can find it at www.jadamthwaite.co.uk. So that's 
J Adamthwaite without a dot in between. She's also on Twitter at Jadamthwaite, so go over there and check her out. Stand Up Tragedy also has a new way to bring you stories, to bring you tragic stories and tragic words. We're going to be writing them down in our fanzine, which we're launching at our tragic Christmas show on the 12th of December. Our fanzine is basically going to be a 16-page magazine of tragedy that we're going to produce and sell at our live shows. It's going to feature pictures, artwork, cartoons. We don't just want fictional stories. We can have true stories. We can have poetry, any kind of use of words that is written down and we can reproduce in our booklet that is tragic and fits our tragic themes. So the deadline for the coming fanzine will be at the end of November. And if you want to send your submissions for Tragic Christmas, so it's got to be tragic and it's also got to be Christmas related, send them to upstandingtragedy at gmail.com. Stand up tragedy. As I said, our next show is Tragic Christmas and it's on the 12th of December. It's going to be really great. They are both going to be fundraising for the amazing organisation Arts Emergency. So everything that you pay to come to our live show or when you buy our fanzine will go to Arts Emergency. Find out more about Arts Emergency at arts-emergency.org they're an organization that i really believe in and i'm going to be donating to them come payday so you should definitely consider donating to them one of the ways to do that is to come to our tragic christmas live show the tickets are five pounds in advance or seven pounds in advance including the fanzine get over to www.standuptragedy.co.uk and buy the tickets now. We really have got a great lineup and it is really for a great cause. And we may even be announcing some even more exciting performers who are going to be at the show in the next few weeks. Book now to avoid disappointment. To explain what Arts Emergency are about, they are an organisation who are dedicated to helping people from backgrounds where they don't have access to education as easily or to the arts and humanities as easily helping them get involved in the arts and getting involved in the humanities there's another way that you can get involved and that is to become a part of arts emergencies alternative old boy network find out more about that if you go to bit.ly forward slash old boy that is where you can donate yourself your time, your contacts, your experience to people who are on their way up. It's about having a mentoring scheme and giving people access to whatever you have achieved already. Pay something back and become a part of their alternative old boy network. I hope that you've enjoyed the tragic stories that we've shared with you today. If you want to hear more tragic stories and to keep up with stand-up tragedy in general, 
can go to our website www.standuptragedy.co.uk we're on twitter at stand up for tragedy and you can friend us or like us on facebook where we're stand up tragedy and for now until next week the tragedy is over Hawkins and recorded by Stephen Harvey. The music was produced by Sam Wilkinson, who can be contacted at Radio Juan at Yahoo.com and our outro music was made by the reaction. Band.